great to see everybody. Uh, are the lights all the way up for everyone? To, are they good enough for you guys? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, getting good, getting better. That's more what I was seeing before. All right, we are we are now at the uh, fourth uh, fourth stage, our final lap. Got a lot of uh, ground to cover, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm gonna pray and just ask God to bless our time here. And Lord, we we thank you. Uh, we bless you together. We we uh, want to come to learn. We're we want to want to come with as much openness as we can to be able to just not only enjoy your word, which is great, Lord, but also to really learn, learn. Um, I just pray that along the way, there would be certain things that, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would shine a light on. And we've spent a lot of time moving in and out, and we have a plan, but we also want to invite you to illuminate certain things to us, Lord. There are certain things that I know that you might want to want to bring up, and we want to be able to hear that. And I pray that by the time that we're done, that we would have a sense that we did something that was very meaningful together. And of course, Lord, we we pray that because it's so much built around your your words that are eternal, and meaningful, and significant, that it would it would just really um, stir us and cause us to have a, a gratitude and a desire to want to respond and even dig in more deeply. And so my, my prayer is that, that everyone would be strengthened by what we're doing and that we would just have an even greater desire to study your word and an even greater desire, Lord, to want to learn and to expand our knowledge of who you are. And so much of appreciating you, Jesus, is connected to appreciating what has been in the Older Testament. And so we want to be able to just welcome you in as we focus our attention and our mind and our thoughts and our energy as learners and students, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, God. All right, so we uh, covered uh, the eras, and we're going to, the first four eras are what we call the nine eras of the Older Testament, and that was just a, a template that we've used. I, I mentioned that um, I was influenced by a book years ago called 30 Days Understanding Your Bible, and it was in that book by, I think, an author named Anders that I, I first was introduced to this, just the idea of using a template of eras as a way of understanding the Older Testament. And again, uh, I, I'm hoping that a lot of us will appreciate the, the benefit of having a working understanding of the Older Testament, especially as it pertains to helping us with the new and an appreciation for, for Jesus. And I, I, um, I wanted to mention one other thing. You know, we have, we have Bibles that we bought for people just to be able to purchase at really low cost if they needed them. And we had all kinds of different you know, translations, the ESV, the NLT, which I'm going to be using tonight predominantly, and the, the New King James Version, which is those are the, the three primary versions that we use here at Cornerstone. And of course, there were Bible studies as well, kind of uh, study Bibles that uh, were, uh, were trying to make available. And we also had some books as, that were there, you know, Mere Christianity, we talked about More Than a Carpenter. But there was one in particular that I, have, I had wanted to make available to you, and, and um, I asked them if they could order them. And this were the books that were on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the reason I, I wanted uh, everybody to at least have an opportunity to, I know it's, it's, it's a pretty big book. I get it. I understand that. <laughs> I, uh, but it's a, it's a really uh, fascinating read. Uh, 
It's called uh, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, and I was really affected by this book this summer and deeply, deeply uh, moved in terms of my own commitment to Christ, just in a deepening way when I was watching how this pastor um, really grew in his faith um, during the whole rise and ultimately the fall of, of the Nazis in Germany. But uh, along the way, he, he ultimately had to give his life up. And uh, it's a fascinating book because it not only traces one man's journey in a very intelligent way in his own deepening life with God, but it also um, gives you the backdrop of history, World War II, and really what happened in Germany is just absolutely fascinating. It's a very well-written book. So I just wanted you to, if you're looking for a book to read and you want something that's going to nourish you and keep you interested and you like history, but you also want to watch someone who is moving forward in their own life with God, this is a very interesting book that will compel us at a deep level to think about what it means to even, even suffer for Jesus and to have to make really fascinating moral decisions uh, around certain dilemmas that we face. So uh, having said that, uh, I want to go ahead, though, and dive in. I, I know last time a lot of you were amazing. You had these uh, long periods of attentiveness that I was moved by. Uh, and uh, we have a goal in mind. And the goal is to, within the uh, time that we have left, to get through and to cover the five remaining eras of the Older Testament. And we, we covered four. I'll just put the four up that we covered. I think they're also noted there on the outline. But the whole creation era, the patriarch era, we talked about the Exodus era. And then we finished last with the conquest era, which is predominantly that part of the, the Bible, we, we were talking about the book of Joshua, when they were going into the promised land, they had been freed out of Egypt and were going into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Now, before I dig even more deeply and now and go into the, to, to the little bit of the transition between the conquest era and the, and the fifth era that's coming, I wanted to just remind everybody that was here this, this weekend that you know when we talked about Stephen in Acts 7, and remember how when I was talking about Stephen in Acts 7, that we mentioned that he, he had been someone who got into this extensive exchange that ultimately results in his being killed. But in Acts 7, he defends himself. And in part, what he does, and you can even turn there real quick and look with me, but you can see that in Acts 7, Stephen embarks on this, this kind of narrative account he summarizes in his short teaching and message a, a kind of brief history of his people. And in, you'll notice that, and I, and I just want you to scan. I don't want you to read in depth. But if you go to Acts 7, you see Stephen talks about Abraham in the first few verses there. He talks about how Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans in verse 4 and lived in Haran until his father died. And, and then he talks about how God gave him no inheritance, not even one square foot, but, but eventually, even though he had no children yet, God had promised him descendants. And then they ended up, he says, being oppressed for 400 years. You see that. And, and there's all this detail around Abraham and then to Isaac and circumcision in Egypt. And remember we talked about how there was particular attention that was, he gives to Joseph and Moses because both of them were deliverers. And 
who had been rejected by their people. And he's trying to make the case that, that Jesus was the, the final rejection, the ultimate deliverer rejected. And I guess part of what I was trying to get us to think about is he really did, Stephen did what we are doing. He essentially made a decision to look at certain pieces of the Older Testament. He had a slight way of emphasizing it, but he just took some pieces of it and highlighted some things. And in a very comprehensive way, what that is covered in, in our Bible in one chapter, but it was really a, a, a summary of his sharing. I mean, he really gives a summary of the, of the history of the people and the way in which the, and he covers Abraham, he covers Moses, he covers Joseph and Isaac and the, talks about the prophets. These are all, look, if we, if we understand the Older Testament, we'll totally appreciate what Stephen is saying. If we didn't, we really would go, well, what's he even talking about? I guess what I'm trying to say is that Stephen does what we're doing and what a, what a, a, a wonderful example in the New Testament of, of the benefit of just even the, having an ability to give an overarching you know, communication or relaying or summary of the Older Testament. And I'm, what I'm suggesting is that what we're doing has great value and great meaning. And it's really important for anyone who really wants to ultimately be committed to following Jesus to have a good sense of how, how God moved in history to get us to him. And so what we're doing has great meaning and value. Now, I, I'm making that point. Um, now, when we think about the area of conquest, we're reminded again of the three J's that we had talked about. Joshua, Jericho, the Jordan. Joshua is the leader who follows Moses. Moses can't go into the promised land. We talked about that. Um, there's a map that we have. I just kind of put it up there about with Jericho. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is still technically in the era number four. They end up going into Jericho, crossing the Jordan from the east, going through to the west. They end up having two campaigns, one going north, one going south. Jericho is the key city. Ultimately, by the time they're finished, Joshua leading the people across the Jordan into, the Jericho, into Jericho, and then ultimately into Palestine, which is today modern-day Israel. You can see the region. Then the, the, the land, the next map will show you that the, the land is divvied up for the most part after they, they have a, a lot of military battles that take place with the inhabitants of Canaan, often called the Canaanites, but there are other names that are mentioned, Moabites, and they, they have radically different, a different sense of what it means to worship God. Uh, the, the region is steeped in pagan worship, uh, worship of idols, uh, a totally, uh, you know, kind of what we would say, radical immorality that included uh, human sacrifice that God gives very fierce instructions that he doesn't, doesn't want Israel in any way to engage. In fact, there has to be a complete, they can't coexist is the point. There's no, no ability to coexist. And he wants it to be completely eliminated. And so no games on right now. Can't have the Giants game on. That's going to have to go off. Whoever has the Giants game on, you got to turn it off. I'll wait. Who are you? <laughs> I don't want to know the score, really. Um, it was already an amazing commitment even to get here. All right? Come on now. 
So as we're talking about it, right? So we're talking about the whole we're divvying up of, of the whole land of Canaan. And oh, and by the way, the reason I brought that up also was because, um, you know, so I was talking to someone about sort of the, the ferocity of the Older Testament. And one of the things that I want to point out is that it's almost like God is saying this nation will not survive. It's, it's pretty much going to either, either they're going to be, have to be completely separate and disengage, and God deals extremely harshly with human depravity. Of course, ultimately, in Christ, he doesn't spare even his own son from that. So seriously does God take evil and depravity, not only for the purpose of safeguarding Israel as a nation to bring forth Messiah, but ultimately he gives himself. So at least we can say one thing about God. He's absolutely consistent in his hate of evil to the extent that he, he is willing to give his own life, his own son, to resolve the problem. We also need to acknowledge that because of Jesus, everything changes. And all of a sudden, what has been a tremendously, tremendous value, tremendous intense kind of, you know, engagement with evil, sort of all of a sudden in Christ, it sort of, he experiences it for us. And, and I, I say that that's important because for me, Jesus sometimes can seem so different than the God of the Older Testament. And a lot of people over, over time have thought a lot about that. All I can say is, for our purpose here, let us not, at this point, try to look through the lens of, 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 a, of a world that's been affected by the coming of Christ and then judge backwards onto the Old Testament. Let's just look at it for what it is, learn what is happening, and then remember that Jesus has changed the entire human equation, all right? And by the way, any of you who want to after service who want to ask me any question around this, I'm going to hang around, so I'm not going anywhere. You can ask me anything. No problem with that. But now we're going to move forward. We're going to do it fairly rapidly, so let's, let's do this together. After the conquest era, which is described predominantly in the book of, of Joshua, comes the next era. We call that the judges era, okay? And the, the judges era is an interesting era because it has what I call three primary kind of, we're going to use words like we did last time to describe the eras. And again, this is just one way of moving through the Older Testament. But the three words that we'll put, the first one has to do with what we call judges, the judges. Now, obviously, the judges era, the judges. Now, when we think of a judge, it's important that we remember that we're not actually talking about a judge like we think of a judge in a court. The, the judges in the time of Israel that follow the book of Joshua, so it goes Joshua judges, after they, after they sort of begin to settle into the promised land, you see this, this, these judges emerge. Judges were more what we would call, put this word there, deliverers. They were more deliverers than arbitrators of, of uh, disputes. There were some cases where some of the judges, as they're called, were indeed arbitrators of disputes. But most of the time, judges were more like what we would think of as a deliverer. And they were people that God would raise up, usually men, but not always. Uh, some of the names that are, are going to become part of the story of the judges are Samson and Gideon, others like Deborah. There are people, some of whom are not even themselves perfect people by any means, but God uses them to bring deliverance to 
his people. You say, well, deliverance from what? Well, what happens is this. Once they settle into the promised land and after Joshua dies, um, there is a bit of an issue that occurs. Uh, and I, we come, we'll put it under the, under the heading of rebellion, which is kind of a theme also of the judge's era. And what I mean by that, in fact, I'll have you look with me at the book of, oh, let's look at Judges 2. So it goes, Joshua, Judges, all right, after you've got the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And in Judges 2, we see kind of a statement that's made, and I think it's kind of a, it's a good summary for us. So Judges 2, verses 6 through 8 and 10 through 12 is what I'm going to look at. I should put that up there. So Judges 2, 6. No, I'll just put through 12. But it says that after Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes um, left to take possession of the land allotted to them. Uh, and the Israelites served the Lord throughout their lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done uh, for Israel. So what we're told is that after they settle into the promised land, there is this period when Joshua is alive and all the leaders who had served with Joshua, there's kind of a really special time in their history because they really do serve God. The overall assessment is that the nation of Israel is serving God, that they, they have decided to keep their commitment um, to adhere to the promises that were made and the covenant that was made between them and, and God when Moses had led them out. And there's a really special time that's described. But then it says this, and the Bible is very succinct sometimes in the Old Testament. It says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of Baal. So this is the first time we really see in a strong way what is called a kind of, I'm going to use this term, it's spiritual idolatry, but God often describes it in terms of adultery. He almost treats it like he feels as if the people are leaving him for another. And he says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served the images of Baal. Those were the gods of the surrounding Canaanite community. And they abandoned the Lord and the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. And look what it says. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. And, and they even abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and these images of Ashtoreth. And there's a whole study there of what that practice was like. And this made the Lord burn with anger, deep anger. And um, when, we, when we look at this, it, we can see that they've kind of have this consistent pattern that starts to emerge. And that leads, this, this turning away from the Lord leads to a beginning of a cycle. Whenever you think of the book of Judges, I want you to think in terms of cycles, and that's the third word. And the reason this is helpful is because there's going to be a pattern. It's kind of a seven characteristic pattern that's gonna happen seven times, which is interesting. Uh, there is a pattern that occurs throughout the book of, of uh, Judges, and it goes pretty much like this. The people, what they do is they, they do what we just read. They start serving other gods. Uh, 
So all of a sudden, they're engaging in the religious, religious practices of their surrounding uh, Canaanites in particular. Uh, but they're, they begin to engage in the religious practices, which were far more sensual than what they had. Uh, many of the rites were built around agriculture and were built around extreme expressions of sensuality. And oftentimes, God's people, Israel, would look very plain, for example, and almost, almost odd compared to the kind of flashy uh, religions uh, that were fertility religions that were around them. And God knew this would be a significant issue. Um, it, would be, it's, it was very easy for them to fall back into these types of practices, even if it was just going through the customs. So there's this ongoing kind of tension that existed. What would happen is they would, they would slowly begin to leave their commitment to God and start to go further and further into the practices of the surrounding community of people that were there to the extent that it got to a point that the Lord would send an, an oppressor this is how God described, described it. He would send or allow a nation to come and, and to oppress them or their enemies to oppress them. And then what would happen is, in the next part of this cycle, is then they would, in turn, cry out to the Lord. Lord, we've sinned. Lord, we've broken covenant with you. Lord, this is why we're being oppressed. This is why we are now being victimized. It's because we forgot your ways. We turned our back on you. We should have known. You told us what would happen. You said you would give us this land, but there was one condition to it, that we needed to always serve you and love you and honor your ways. We've forgotten it. Now we're being judged. Lord, we acknowledge it. Will you deliver us? So the people would cry to the Lord. And when they would cry to the Lord, the Lord would then in turn raise up a judge, a deliverer. And he would send a person, usually a man, but not always, and this deliverer would lead a kind of, boat, uh, 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 how would you say, a bit of a revival, but we would almost say a, 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 a turning back to God. Because the people were crying out to God, God deliver us. And, and the Lord would send them a deliverer, send them someone to lead them out of the oppression that they were experiencing. But then what would happen is, after that occurred, the oppressor would be defeated. And again, this is going to happen at least seven times. The oppressor is defeated. But as soon as the oppressor is defeated, and all of a sudden things are starting to go okay, because the people, number six, have rest. So, so once they're freed up, and they now have rest and they're prospering again, they would, if we can put it this way, it would turn all the way back, and the cycle would start all over again. As they were prospering, as they started to be um, more free, they would again do that which is evil in the sight of God, and they would begin to forget the Lord and his ways and his practices and the thing, and they would again come into a point of oppression. The, the oppression would, would occur because a, 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 something would be raised up as a point of judgment. They would then cry out unto God, God, would you deliver us? We've sinned. God would send a deliverer. The deliverer would come. They would be set free. The oppressor would be defeated. Then they would have a time of rest. And then they fell back into, again, 
the same exact pattern. Every time they, they got to a point of prosperity and safety and um, relative comfort, they had this tendency to just forget about God. And it wasn't, and it almost seems like through the entire book of Judges, unless they were being put into a desperate position, God was something that they didn't care that much about. But as soon as they needed him, they started to cry out, and he would come through. And then the whole pattern would just keep happening over and over again. It's pretty interesting how it works. And then we know that some of the most famous people that occur at that time, there are some really famous figures. I mentioned Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Samuel. Oh, and in between that, there's a book, a very great book called Ruth. Ruth is a beautiful book. And if you ever decided, remember we talked about different ways of studying the Bible. One of the ways to study the scripture is to study a character or a book. Some books are specifically just about a particular character. The book of Ruth is one of those books, and it really stands out in an era dominated by men. Uh, Ruth stands out as an absolutely beautiful book. It, uh, it's, it was during the period of the prophets as well. I mean, at least it shows up right out of the ju- after Judges. It's a story about a remarkable woman who, who is not an Israelite. Um, she's a, what they call a Moabitess. Uh, she was from the people of Moab. She was one who was outside the covenant, but, but, but she becomes part of the genealogy of Christ. And that's why her story is included. It's a story of love and purity and strength and loyalty. It's a great book. And she's a wonderful figure. And there's a lot of things that about, about Ruth's story that, if you were ever study it out, have a, a significant connection to Jesus Christ. The whole concept of kinsman redeemer, which I can't get into. The whole idea that she, someone outside, ultimately becomes part of the line that that Jesus is connected to. It's an amazing story. Well, the judge's era uh, kind of ends in a unique way. It leads us into what is called the the next era, which we're going to call the kingdom era. And the kingdom era is kind of divided up in four ways. And this is the best way I know to do it, to describe it. So we, we have the creation, we have the patriarchs, we have the, we have the exodus, we have the, the, the moving back into the promised land, then we have this cycle of the judges that occur, and then all of a sudden there's a shift. And what it, the shift is, occurs around a key figure. The last of the judges and the first of the prophets is a man named Samuel. Samuel. And Samuel's birth is quite remarkable. I'll put his name up there because it's no... It's not, it's not in the notes. But Samuel's a, a wonderful figure. Uh, he is kind of a miracle baby. His mother is Hannah. You read about it in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel uh, was someone who his parents ultimately dedicated to the Lord. He's raised up under, the, under a priest named Eli who has two wicked sons who are corrupt and, and abuse the office of a priest and take deep advantage of the people. And God is seriously displeased. But Samuel is growing up in this environment where he sees corruption everywhere, but Eli is actually a, a godly priest, but he's a bad father. And the two, it's possible to be faithful in one area and, and, and not strong in another. And Eli was a weak man. 
He didn't corral his sons, and they used the privileges of that office to take advantage of the people, and God was displeased. And God ultimately bypasses Eli's sons, and there's a, you read the book of 1 Samuel, it's beautiful. The Lord, the Lord begins to speak to Samuel as a young man, and, and Eli recognizes it and helps interpret to young Samuel. He's the older priest, but he recognizes God's movement, and he begins to tell Samuel, God's working in your life. He's going to use you to replace me as the primary spokesman here. Samuel ends up being uh, a key person because he's the bridge between the two eras. He's the bridge between the judges and the, and the kingdom era. And why do we call it the kingdom era? Because it's in the kingdom era that Israel decides they don't want to simply be like they've always been, a nation who's, who is sort of governed in a theocratic way with every now and then some type of a leader, but, but mainly they just have God as their leader. They look around at some of the surrounding nations, and they're envious. They feel like these other nations have kings, and they don't. And so in one of the monumental decisions, the people begin to clamor for, for a, a new way of, of being governed. They begin to tell the prophet, in this case Samuel, that we want you to, to see if God will give us a king so we can be like everybody else. We don't want to be the oddball here. And there's this amazing exchange. Look, if you go, go to 1 Samuel, and I'm kind of moving so that we're moving through the Bible in a kind of, you know, island-hopping way here, but it's moving chronologically. So from Judges into 1 Samuel, after Ruth, it goes 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 8, and again, this is for all of us to have a working knowledge of kind of how this thing goes. And in 1 Samuel 8, verse number 1, it says, And Samuel grew old, and he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel, Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, and they held court in Beersheba. So you see there's still judges right now. And it looks like they're going to be the next judges. And this is Samuel, who's now older. And he was a good man. Samuel was a godly prophet. This was not a corrupt man. This was, this was the real deal. And it says, they were, but they were not like... Now we see, though, that Samuel's sons have also had the same problem that Eli's sons had. Uh, it says they were not like their father. They were greedy for money. They accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. Isn't that amazing? How that... It says, finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. They said, look, you are now old. And your sons, they're not like you. And we like you. And we respect you. But, Samuel, I don't know if you've noticed this, but your sons, they're really bad. They're not good men. They're not like you. Look what he says. The, look, he says, he says, give us, in light of this, we want you to give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. We want a king. We, we don't want your sons. They're not that great anyway. They're not like you. And we'd rather, we're looking around and we're going, they have kings and we don't have a king. We would like to have a king. Samuel, look what it says here. Samuel was displeased with their request. And he says, well, I don't know if I like that. And he went to the Lord for guidance. And, and it says, do everything they say to you, the Lord said, replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. Interesting. They don't want me, God says. Really, if you want to get down to it, they don't want me to be their king any longer. I've been their king, really. You've been the, my extensions, but I've been their king. 
And ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are going to give you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Go ahead and tell them, make them have a king. But also, Samuel, let them know what a king is going to be like. Just just let, let them know that a king is going to have a lot of power. And he's going, to, he's going to want stuff. He says, look, so Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is how a king is going to reign over you. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. He's going to want to field an army. Some are going to be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some are going to make his weapons, his chariot equipment. The king is going to take your daughters from you. He's going to force some of them to cook and bake and make perfumes for you. He's going to take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He's going to take a tenth of your grain. He's going down a pretty good list here. He's making a really good case why they shouldn't have a king. Um, By the time he's done, it says in verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. They said, yeah, that might be true, but we still want a king. We, and here, look at that verse, key, key verse, verse 20. You know why? We just want to be like the nations around us. Yeah, our king is going to judge at us, and he's going to lead us into battle. And Samuel repeated the Lord, to the Lord what the people said, and the Lord re- replied, do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Now we have the beginning of the kingdom era. The kingdom era starts right here, because now Samuel begins to seek out who does the Lord want to have as a king. We have the introduction of a man. His name, he's not looking to be king either. He's actually a very humble man. His name is Saul. Saul. He becomes the first king of Israel. Saul is someone who initially is from the smallest tribe. And he's the youngest of the smallest tribe of what he says is the least important family of the smallest tribe. So he, when, when Saul meets Samuel and Samuel tells him this is what God wants to do, Saul's hiding out, and he's this tall, very powerful man, but he doesn't want to be a leader, and he's actually very humble. But, but Samuel says, I believe God wants you to be the king. And, and, he, and he ends up having, listen, a deep affection for Saul. And Saul initially is a humble man. But Saul exhibits a character flaw. And if you proceed to read through Samuel, you will note that he has a character flaw. And it's a real problem. There, as he begins to acquire power, he becomes kind of stubborn. And his stubbornness causes him at times to be disobedient to some of the things that God wants him to do. And out of that disobedience, ultimately comes this moment in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, where, where, and I'm not going to necessarily have us go there, but there's this moment where Saul's been given very specific instructions, and he's apologetic, and he gets caught, and he's saying, I shouldn't do it. God basically says to Samuel, I've rejected Saul. I'm not going anymore with this man. The anointing's off of him. I've decided to give the blessing to another, Samuel. And I want you to let Saul know that he is no longer going to be the one that I I want and will anoint as the king. 
you need to tell him that. Now, it says that Samuel was grieved, for he loved Saul. But God tells Samuel that I have someone else that I've decided that I want to lead. And that leads, in 1 Samuel 15, goes into 1 Samuel 16. And that's that first introduction that, to the, uh, a name that all of us are going to immediately recognize, for it becomes a name that is associated with Israel forever. And that is, and it's also the name that's going to be associated with Messiah, and that is the name David. David. For in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's told to go to the house of Jesse, that he's got, there's eight sons. The first one's Eliab. Samuel thinks, oh my goodness, look at this man. See, Samuel, Saul looked like a king. Samuel loved him. It's pretty clear that Samuel had this thing of what a king was supposed to look like. And so when he sees the first son of Jesse, whose name is Eliab, he's just so powerful and tall and strong, he just immediately assumes, well, that's the one. And God says, no, that's not him. I don't see as men see. And one of my favorite verses in the Older Testament, for men look on the outside, but God sees the heart. For Samuel 16. And then each of the sons is, he says, well, let me, let me see your sons. And each time Samuel is waiting, for, he for, appears listening for God's voice to say, this is the one. And each son comes from the eldest to the youngest each time. No, I don't know. And then Samuel finally turns to Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? And he goes, I've got one, but he's the youngest one. And right now, he's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. Well, you need to call him because I'm not going anywhere until you get him in here. And you need to get him here. And as soon as he came, the Lord immediately spoke to Samuel and said, this is the one, anoint him. And then we have the beginning of David. And you want to do a character study. I mean, I've always, I've always, the life of David is a stunning life. It's like a New Testament figure in the middle of the Old Testament era. It's just fascinating. It has ins and outs, intrigue, moments of great glory and great defeat. This is a, it has the whole account of David rising up. There, there is one of my favorite themes is to watch the way in which David relates to Saul as Saul becomes increasingly abusive and dangerous, but he is still in authority. And David will not raise his hand against Saul, even though Saul is abusive and David has already been anointed. And there's an, a whole another level of depth in this where David is a, is a not only is he, he's also a person who plays music and is a, writes praise to God. And there are times where it, it says that a, a, when the Lord's anointing left Saul, okay, just stay with me, it says that a dark spirit came over Saul that there was something of the demonic that would come to Saul and disturb him, uh, put him in deep, deep bouts of depression. I'm just telling you, we, just, this is what the Old Testament does. It just gives you these broad stroke statements. And that what's interesting is that Saul would, because someone had introduced David to him, Saul doesn't know that David is ultimately going to be the one to replace him. Um, Saul just knows David as this shepherd who plays this music that settles his him in his um, stirred up dark places. 
and he loves David, and he asks for David to periodically come and play in his court whenever he's going through these depressed fits. And David will play his music under the Lord, and it would calm him down, it says, which is a fascinating thing to consider. But as time goes on, Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, who would be the heir, is a, 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 becomes David's best friend. And he's a wonderful man. And they have a tremendous friendship and common love for God. And Jonathan is another amazing character, the son of Saul, because he knows David is the one that's going to replace him and take a spot that you could argue is rightfully his. But he has no envy at all. And he's not a weak man. He just loves God and he loves David. And David loves Jonathan. And he even loves his father, who is starting to increasingly, as you read through Samuel, starts to increasingly show these displays of fierce, murderous anger. One time taking a spear and trying to kill David. Then as time goes on, he begins to realize David is the one. David has this whole exchange with Goliath. There's the word gets out. David, people are worshiping David. They want him to step forward, take out Saul. David won't do it. He says, if God wants me on the throne, he'll put me on there, but it will not be by my own hand. There's even a time where Saul decides he's going to chase David down, and David has to flee into the wilderness. You can still go to some of those places. A lot, some of the Psalms are written while David is fleeing for his life with a band of men. And in the wilderness, he writes his songs to God. Some of them we have in the book of Psalms. One of those, when he's talking about, as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after thee, Psalm 42. I mean, there's these, these moments where he's out in the wilderness and he's sensing God's presence, even though he's being hunted like a wild animal. And there's a time where he's being hunted, where they're tracking him down, and he actually sneaks up on Saul, and he can kill him. And they say, God's delivered him into your hands. Take his life, because he's sleeping in a cave. And David just does a little something just to prove that he was there but he won't do it. He won't kill him. I will not touch the anointed of the Lord. Powerful. This is a huge interplay relating to spiritual authority. And it's a deep, deep study. There's a great little book. And I mean, it's little. It's interesting. If my memory is correct, it's called, you may still be able to get it. It's called A Tale of Three Kings by a man named Gene Edwards. A Tale of Three Kings. It's a little book. And it talks about David because something else happens with David, not just his relationship with Saul, okay? But what happens is David, after he ends up, how can I do this? I'm going to have to do this fast. Okay. David becomes king eventually. Saul is killed in battle, but not because David made it happen. David becomes the king. Then after a period of time, David does... He stops going out to battle. He begins to get a life of ease. And he, he creates a scenario for himself where even though he could have had anyone and, and has, has people in his life, beautiful people, women in his life, he's a king. They told him, what's, this, what's gonna happen when you have kings? But he, he wants another man's wife named Bathsheba. He sees her one day as he's on the, on the palace, um, the deck of the palace, it appears, overlooking. And he sees her. And he commits a great sin. He commits adultery. She gets pregnant. 
he has to do something because the husband of this woman named Bathsheba is actually an amazing man and an honorable man, Uriah the Hittite, a fierce warrior, deeply loyal to God and to David. David eventually has him killed, not by anybody doing anything to him, but he says what I want to is to the commander. He says, when the heat of the battle is on, what I want you to do is put Uriah out there and then have everybody pull back. And the guy says, well, if you do that, he's dead. Do what I say. Well, David goes from being this man who loves God, who's just an amazing man, uh, to someone who essentially commit, he commits, you could say he commits murder. He doesn't do it directly, but he essentially murders Uriah. And so then he takes Bathsheba in as his wife. And he thinks he's got away with it. And God sends a prophet, a man by the name of Nathan. And Nathan says, I have a story to tell you. And in one of the great exchanges, uh, Nathan begins to give him, and let me see if I can get that for, for us. Nathan begins to get, uh, you know, uh, for the sake of time, I better just tell us what to tell you what happens, all right? Nathan says, look, there's a guy, there's a rich guy, and I'm summarizing now, so don't hold me to every detail. He says, there's a rich guy, he's got this great flock, there's a poor guy, doesn't have much, but he's got one little special lamb. The rich guy reached over and took his lamb, the only one he had. The he had all kinds, but he just took the one and killed it. Took it. David said, what kind of person does that? Let me know this man's name and I'll have him put to death, basically is what he's saying. Nathan says one of the great lines, and this one I do remember. Thou art the man. And David, who actually did have a heart for God, but had gotten himself progressively into a place where he had one sin led to another until he covered it all up. That's when we get one of the great Psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 51. For David begins to, instead of saying, who are you to say such a thing to the king? Do you know who I am? You know what David does? He gets down and he begins to grieve unto the Lord. And he begins to cry out unto God, created me, and not in that exact moment, but he begins to grieve before God, and he writes this, created me in a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. It's this beautiful song of repentance. The Lord says, you're going to be judged. I'm not taking you off. You're going to be forgiven, but you're also going to have a consequence to what you've done. One, the baby's not going to live. Two, you're going to have division in your family for a long time to the day you die. The, the Sheba's baby dies, but she has another baby. Now, David has other sons and daughters, some of whom are older, but there's this one baby that she ends up having, the one that comes after the one that dies from the adulterous relationship because he takes her in as his wife. The name of that baby is Solomon. But David has another son, 
and his name is Absalom. Now, he has other children, but Absalom is a, is a man who would be king. And he decides that he wants his father removed. And you can trace. So what happens is David ends up having division in his own home. The, what, what Absalom ultimately does is he leads a coup against his own father. He begins to go to the city gates, and he starts talking David down. And he starts winning people more and more. He's a people guy. And he starts saying, you know, if I was king, I wouldn't do it this way. Now, that's what David does. And these are, you know, we've got to work with the program. But if I was the king, I would do it different. And before long, he's, he begins to win. He's young. He's dashing. He starts to, Absalom's baby, he's not even in the picture. He's, he, begins to, he begins to get the people and ultimately leads a coup. And David has to flee for his life out of, out of the city. And he's on the run being chased by his own son. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a moment. And, and, and it says that even and what ends up happening is there ends up being this, this essentially David's men and Absalom's men and God ultimately they have, a, they have warfare. Um, David, he's got this huge blind spot for his son. He always has. Can't see it. Even when his son's trying to take him down, still can't see it. Finally, one of David's men, I believe it was, it was Joab or Abner. I can't remember which one it was. Absalom has this amazing hair. And I'm not joking. That's one of the characteristics of Absalom. He's got this, like, amazing hair. That's what it says. It's like this long, flowing locks, but when he's being chased, it gets caught in a tree. I guess this is flying upwards, and it gets tangled, and he's hanging there off of And even though the, the commander was given explicit instructions do, by David, do not kill Absalom, whatever you do, don't kill my son. But he's led a coup against you, and he'll do it again. Don't kill him. He decides, I'm going to do it anyway, and he slays Absalom. David goes into mourning. My son, my son, my son. And finally, they come to him, and they say, look, you're, you're grieving for a son who's led a rebellion instead of being concerned about all of us and the people that are now living at the, at the, after the residue of this civil war. Where do, where's your heart for them? Come on. Buck up, David, come on. And eventually he does, and he regains himself. And he eventually, and he has this dream. David has a dream. He wants to build a temple for God. The Lord deserves a temple. I have a palace. He deserves a temple. And I want to build it. And God says, you can't do it because you have too much blood on your hands. I will not have a man with as much blood on his, blood on his hands building a temple for me. It's interesting. David says, well, can I at least prepare for it so that my son, and ultimately Solomon is the one who becomes king, so that my son can build it for you? The Lord says, yes. So David spends a majority of the final years of his life acquiring um, resource to build a house for the Lord because it is not right that the king should have a house, but the Lord would not have a house. That was how he thought. It's amazing. This is a great, I mean, this is, I mean, we're just like, we're just all, this is just pieces, right? What ends up happening is Solomon becomes a great king in this period. I got to hustle now. Solomon becomes a great king, but 
<laughs> something happens. He starts out really well. He's got a tremendous amount of wisdom. He prospers, but then he compromises. As Solomon grows older, and he builds this magnificent temple for the Lord, Solomon's temple, the glorious temple, it was a beautiful, amazing temple, the glory of Israel. And then what happens, we're told, in 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 11, I'll just put that in there, 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings, oh, this is, uh, it's not even going to make sense. 1 Kings 11, all right? Look with me there, 1 Kings 11. So after 1 and 2 Samuel, it says, watch what happens, though. It says that, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, from among the Hittites. Now, the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. And he had 700 wives of royal birth. But that wasn't all. He had 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. And in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods. Instead of being completely faithful to the Lord as God, as his father David had been, Solomon began to worship even Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites in which child sacrifice occurred. And in this way, Solomon did that which was evil in the Lord's sight, and he refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. And then if you jump over to verse 11... 11, 11, it says, So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and you have disobeyed my decrees, I'm going to tear. Look at this. I will surely tear the kingdom away from you, and I'm going to give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do this while you are still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take the entire kingdom, but I will let him be the king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. And then what begins to happen next? So let me just kind of list this. In the kingdom era, you have the era of the United Kingdom, number one. Number one, it's united. That's predominantly under Saul, David, and Solomon. The United Kingdom, not to be confused with the United Kingdom, but the era of the kingdom being essentially united, the three keys... Saul, David, Solomon, the key bridge, Samuel, from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. But then after this judgment, we come to what is called the fulfillment of the promise, the judgment of the Lord. And the kingdom goes from being united to being divided. What occurs is a civil war, a civil war in the history of Israel. It's covered a lot in 1 Kings, the book. The kingdom ultimately, after Solomon, is divided up. It's divided up into two halves. Just like in America, we had a civil war between the north and the south. In Israel, there is a civil war between the north and the south that follows on the heels. The only difference is the two kingdoms completely separate and never unite. The kingdoms, and I'm going to put up a, a map, real quick, or we are, 
It's going to just show the two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom pretty much consists of a majority of the tribes. It has its leader, um, a man named Jeroboam. And notice, you guys, and this is important when you read through the Bible, that the nation of Israel is now known by two names. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes, is known as Israel. The southern kingdom, which is going to outlive the, the northern kingdom. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. And now we begin to recognize also the connection to the idea of Jew, Judah. Judah is the dominant tribe of the south. Keep that, can you put that map back up one more time, though, real quick? You see how Jerusalem is located in what came in the south, right? And the northern kingdom. So there's the southern with Jerusalem, and they have a little bit of the tribe of Benjamin as well. So Benjamin, which is the smallest of the tribes, is sort of included. So you basically have Judah and a little bit of Benjamin, and then you have the ten on the, on the north. And that, that period, essentially, and now we go to the, it, so you have the northern kingdom, so we can go back there and put up the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, and I think I put this in your handout, you'll notice, I think we did, yes. Okay, there's this chart um, called the, the chronological table of the kings of the divided kingdom. Now, my, I'm only gonna, the reason I'm having you look at this is because the northern kingdom lasts about 250 years. And there are um, the, the essentially 19 kings. Now, this is, this is a little interesting chart. It, it tells you who the kings were, how long they reigned, and it always gives you a character. It's called either they were good or bad. <laughs> okay? Now, I want you to look at it. And this is based on the Bible saying they were good or they were a bad king. And it was solely based upon their willingness to honor God. Now, I want you to see, how many good kings do you see in the, king, the northern kingdom of Israel? Zero. There wasn't one. Every one of them led the people into idolatry. It finally got to a point where after 250 years, after these 19 kings are done, I think it's 2 Kings 17. If I'm not mistaken, let me double check. 2 Kings 17, where it says that what, what it does in 2 Kings 17 is it, it basically God says, this is, I'm done with this. This is over. In the year of 722 BC, one of the first real powers of the region emerges an area that's still kind of in the news right now. But the nation of a, the, the kingdom, the small kingdom compared to what's going to follow, of Assyria. And you'll see them noted throughout this, this time frame when you read through the Old Testament. Assyria arises as a power broker and essentially conquers the entire northern kingdom. And it's gone, taken captive, eliminated. But the southern kingdom continues on, it's trying to carve its own way out. Um, you, look at that, you look at the table again, and you can see that 
there are kings who, some of whom are good, some of whom, are, a lot of them are bad, but a lot of them are, there are times where they have good kings. You see King Jehoshaphat, King Asa, Jehoshaphat. Um, there was a revival that occurs where, where revivals are described as times when the people would turn back to God and there would come a vibrancy of love for God and dedication to God that would seize the, the nation and the people. And you'll see that there was a string of, of Joash and Amaziah and then you see these good kings that start to emerge and yeah, then towards the end, you start to, start to see uh, finally uh, a string of bad ones. And you can also, oh, and look at also, you're going to note the, the, the prophets of the era. You can see them also on the sides there on that table. It's a very interesting table. But the point is, is that finally it gets to a point where the southern kingdom is, after 400, 400 years, it also is, is, is judged. And... It is overtaken by an even greater power. A nation rises up from the east that obliterates the Assyrian Empire, and it becomes the most prolific power that that part of the world has ever seen. It is a nation that will be known as Babylon. And Babylon rises. And what's interesting is one of the kings had shown the Babylonians emissaries, the beautiful temple, and all the wonderful things that were in it. Well, by the time history is done, the Babylonians will plunder the great temple of Solomon and it will leave nothing of value in it. And it is obliterated once they crush the re rebellion and eliminate. First, they try to make them a vassal nation. Then eventually, they rebel and they're completely destroyed. And that leads us to this whole concept of prophets. And I want to put this on the board. Okay, now stay with me on this, you guys. Prophets are generally divided into three categories, all right? I'm just going to, what I'm doing here is I'm laying the groundwork for all of us. Because prophets are a big part of the Older Testament. Jesus talks about the writings of the prophets. Prophets were foretellers, not just for, they, they didn't just tell, foretell, they also foretold. They, they were not just telling the future. A lot of times their primary responsibility was to speak forth the word of God. There were more forth tellers than foretellers. They could be both, but primarily they were spokesmen about the Lord's word. The word of the Lord is coming to you. And we, we divide them usually into three categories. Okay, this is going to be a semi-theological term, but it's the best way to do it, you guys. It, the three categories of the prophets are usually divided into are what we would call pre-exilic. I know this is it's a bit more than I wanted to do, but it's the best way I can think of it. Uh, exile, post-exilic. And what this is simply referring to is the, the exile of the people as these foreign countries take the Jewish people captive and remove them from the land. And so there are some prophets who were telling the people you can notice, okay, see on the chart, you guys, you can see how every king, there are certain prophets that are listed there. You see that? In the fourth, in the, in the column there, it says prophet. Different prophets were sent in different times to speak forth. You're going to notice that two of the key, for example, pre-exilic prophets that ministered prior to the exile of the Jewish people some of the more famous ones there would be like people like Elijah, Elijah, um, two of the greatest prophets of all, 
for different reasons. You'll hear these names. You'll recognize them immediately. Isaiah and Jeremiah were all pre-exilic. What it means is they were ministering in an era where, where Jeremiah in particular, Isaiah talks so much about the coming of Messiah. To the great prophecies concerning Jesus are found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 14 and the entire 53rd chapter of Isaiah, which speaks about the suffering Messiah and is a stunning picture of the crucifixion, an amazing description of the crucifixion hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53, often quoted, the suffering Messiah. Stunning, amazing, a connection written as if it were written in real time. But Jeremiah, I want to just sit with him for a moment because he is kind of like the the prophet that leads right into the captivity, he has the un... Jeremiah has the unenviable task of telling all the people that they're all doomed. And everybody brands him as someone who is a traitor to his own people. And God starts telling him to do certain things. I mean, he's commanded not to marry or have children as an illustration that judgment is coming in his case. Sometimes the prophets would do these very bizarre things that God would ask them to do as a way of illustrating to the people what he was about to do. And God's telling that Jeremiah starts crying. He weeps. He's known as the weeping prophet. Hence the book Lamentations. A lamenting. He's persecuted. They hate him. Everybody hates him. But he's telling them the truth. And then he tells them this. Even though you're about to be judged and anything that you're doing to stop it, it's not going to work. It's past the point. God's going to judge you. He's already got a nation coming and they're going to judge it all. There's no way out. But he says, but after 70 years of captivity, God's going to let you come back to the land. Remember what I told you. In fact, real quick, look with me at Jeremiah 25. Isaiah, Jeremiah. So this is after the Psalms, okay? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, then you get into the, what they call the major prophets. Remember, we talked about that in week one. But in the book Isaiah, Jeremiah, so it's after the Psalms. And in Jeremiah 25, he makes this statement. He says in verse 9, Jeremiah 25, 9, he says, I will gather together all the armies of the north under the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who I have appointed as my deputy, and I will bring them all against this land and its people. It's talking about the southern kingdom because the northern one's already been gone. And I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and ruin forever. That was the verdict. And I will take away your happy singing and your laughter. And there are reasons. This is not just God just saying something. This is a product of choices the nation makes till they get to this point. But once the die is cast, it's cast. But in the midst of this, he says, the joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent. The lights in your homes will go out. The entire land will become a desolate wasteland. He's saying, look, there's not going to be anybody here. This is all going to be gone. The examples he's saying is, There aren't going to be any weddings going on. There aren't going to be any businesses going on. There aren't going to be anything. Watch what is about to happen. But then he says this. The entire land will become a desolate wasteland, and Israel and her neighbor lands will serve the king of Babylon, he says, for 70 years. This is before it happens. 
And then after the seven years of captivity are over, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins. And says the Lord, and I will make their country of the Babylon's the wasteland forever, Babylonians wasteland forever, and I will bring upon them all the terrors I place. Anyway, this, this is called, this isn't important. This is called the 70-year prophecy of Jeremiah. You just read it. This prophecy becomes huge for everybody who, who is in captivity. One of those men's name, and this leads to the next era, by the way, because what we now are talking about is the, this is the era we call the exile era, right? So it goes from the kingdom era to the exile era. And the exile era is the era where Israel is now no longer living in their land. They're living in for, predominantly in foreign, in foreign lands. D Daniel becomes a key figure. We're told in Daniel, the book of Daniel, that, and I'll just, I'm just going to read the, the first chapter. I'm not going to read much because, we don't, again, just for the sake of uh, our time. But in Daniel 1, it was Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. So just two books over from Jeremiah. Daniel 1 you see, and Daniel's an amazing, if you want to do another amazing character study, Daniel's another one of those guys. But look what it says here in Daniel 1. It says that in verse number 1, he says, During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem, besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah, permitted him to take some of the sacred objects of the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia, and he placed them in the treasure house of his God. Well, if you keep reading, it says here, Then the king ordered Asphanaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Then the king will assign them. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians take the entire... Um, young leadership class of Israel and just gut it, take it all. And essentially, there's, every, every leader is brought to Babylon and to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians. There will no longer be a nation. And they revolt again, and they're eventually just more of them are relocated. And it looks like it's done. What happened? God was going to make, brought them into the promised land, uh, made them into a nation, told them that they, starting with Abraham, they were going to be a people of promise, and now they're gone. There is no nation. Gone. Obliterated, taken captive to foreign lands. Well, what happens is, and we see this, it occurs, it's fascinating. And, there, and during that time, you have men like Daniel and Ezekiel. But what happens is, at, following that, while they're in Babylon, there is a, a, the churning of kingdoms starts to occur. And God says at around that, a little before that 70-year mark, he has another kingdom arise. And in fact, if you read Daniel, I think it's Daniel 6, Daniel has this vision of these beasts. He has a couple of different visions, and they represent global powers, some of whom haven't even come into being yet. And it's also one of the books that gets people thinking about a future potential of even what's called the Antichrist. There's people talk a lot about Daniel because it's a book of tremendous prophecy. Daniel says you're going to see the churning of great kingdoms. He has this vision, and I'll just quickly say, tell you about one of them. He sees this creature like a lion with wings. He's, it rises up. It's powerful. God basically says, that's the nation, it, basically, that's the nation of Babylon. He says, but there's going to come another one. Another nation is going to emerge. Another kingdom. It's like a bear. And we know that ultimately turns out to be the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians that overwhelms in mass the Babylonians. 
And eventually, it's the king of the, the Persians that allows Israel to, consider, to go back to their homeland. One of the things that's really amazing is that leads you into from that, that moment where you have the churning of the kingdom. Seventy years pass, and the king of, of Media Persia agrees to allow the, allow the Jews to return back to their land. That's what we call the era of the return. So that's the return era. Now you're going to recognize these names as I taught an entire series on one of them. Nehemiah and Ezra occur during this period. Ezra and Nehemiah. The first group leaves, and I put this in your handout. You can kind of see it as well. I, I know um, it should be there yet. It should be there, yes. It says the nation of Israel. You can see, though, how the, they get to go back. They start returning back, and, and eventually they get to rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the walls. It's not like Solomon's temple. It's actually a sad, comparatively speaking, but at least they are allowed to return. That's how they get back there, because the kingdom that overtakes Babylon are convinced that God wants them to let the Jews go back to their homeland. And so they go back, and Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately become key figures, and the land is resettled. The nation starts to grow again. Uh, you start seeing the immigration back. There's the freedom to return. And that, ultimately, the return era, which is the eighth era, that leads to what we call the silent era. I'm not talking film here. I'm just talking about the silent era. Because what happens in this period is that Israel begins to reconstitute itself. And it has the emergence of... There are, and I say the silent era is characterized by three things, and we'll, we'll, we'll put it this way. Number one, it, we, we talk about changing powers. During this period, which is the, the hundreds of years before Jesus, so let's just talk about that five to 600 years before Christ... During this period, the third great kingdom of David's vision emerges. In David's vision, it's described well beforehand in his vision like a leopard. And it's the kingdom of the Greeks. It's Alexander the Great. And Alexander overwhelms the Persians. He has a unique military tactic. He ultimately takes over all of Palestine all of a sudden, Greece, Greek language becomes the predominant language and culture. You have what is known as the Maccabees. Um, there's these, these political sects. That's the, second, that's the second part here. There are militant Jews who are revolutionaries. Um, the Maccabeans successfully revolt against Greek oppression during this period. Um, and I, it, it's, a, it's a period where you also have the emergence of zealots because there's a third the fourth kingdom that emerges is the one that seemed most ferocious in Daniel's vision. It was like an animal he said he'd never, they'd never seen. There was no way to describe it. And it was what, was what we know as the Roman Empire. And it overwhelmed everything. It absorbed everything. It made the other kingdoms look as great as they were. No one had ever seen anything like Rome. Rome the expansiveness of their reach was stunning. And their, their ability to completely um, dictate what was known as the Pax Romana, the, 
the peace of Rome by absolute brutal force. It, it had never been seen. There had never been a military power like that in this world's history. And during this time, which sets up the time of Christ, you see it? See how it works? Is there were the emergence in Israel of two predominant religious sects. And these, these groups were known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One was Pharisee, and the other one was Sadducee. That's a joke. I used to learn that when I was, okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were as bad. That was like a rut. It's awful. All right. The Pharisees were, were what we would call, and this will, this will, they were the Orthodox. They were the conservative. Saul was a Pharisee. A lot of Jesus' interactions occur with the Pharisees, but it's because they cared about the law. They were deeply committed to the ways of the law. The Sadducees didn't believe in it as much. They were more the upper, upper kind of, if I may put it this way, they were more liberal. They were the party of the upper class. They were also the politically dominant class under Rome. So the Sadducees actually held more power, at the, and they had a group in which they merged together, the ruling body called the Sanhedrin. Guess what? During the silent period, the reason it's called silent is for 400 years, there's not a prophet there's no voice. There's nothing. Nothing arises. It's like God goes silent. It's like it all goes dead. Not a one prophet. Prophets are done. Is there not a prophet in Israel? Nothing. You see the movement of religious system, but no, no prophetic voice. No, no. And then, all of a sudden, as a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And at first the curtain was re removed in a little town called Bethlehem, the beginning of a movement of God. And then the emergence with the pulling back of the curtain with a voice crying in the wilderness, the first prophet to emerge in generations. John, the one they call the Baptist, the baptizer, who will usher in the coming of Messiah. And there we have it. We have the span of the eras. The nine that get us to Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's like the, from the silence comes the blaring sound of the trumpet, the, the new thing that God is about to do. All that is meant to be fulfilled is now about to happen. All that the prophets foretold of is now about to occur. A wonderful, wonderful, special moment of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your words. Um, I, I pray that we would, we would gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for, for the way in which your word works together in such an amazing, intricate way. Perhaps, Lord, there are certain people that as we've done this very quick survey, not unlike Stephen did when he just isolated a few key people, or we've tried to isolate a few key things. And perhaps there are certain books or certain concepts or certain people that have intrigued us that we will want to dig more deeply into um, and perhaps pursue and listen for your voice and learn. Lord, there's so much there. There's so much there. Again, we often describe it as our, a treasure chest, things new and old. 
And even though it's an older covenant, Lord, it still has much to teach us about the new things that you have done in Christ. And I want to ask you, Lord, that you would keep putting a love, a, a love for your words that would grow as the years go by. I pray that your word would continue always in new ways to just inspire us, to compel us, to intrigue us. I pray that your words would be alive in our lives, all the days of our lives. And I pray that at different places in our lives, different seasons in our lives, some of these stories would mean even more to us and remind us of things. I just pray for a blessing. I pray for everyone who's poured their heart and focus into this, that, that I pray that what would come forth out of this is an even deeper love and appreciation and knowledge of your word and that, that's, that it would just flourish in them. I pray that your words would flourish like, uh, like trees growing by the rivers of living water, just, just fruitful and multiply in amazing ways and would be of benefit at key times in critical conversations that we have and, and our, even our own ability to draw off of that knowledge. So I pray blessing in life and I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of sharing your words together. May we grow in love with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 All right.